right now, we've got the one and only Patrick Henningsen. Patrick, welcome to Fault Lines. Hey, great to be with you, Garland. Hey. Great to be with you, Lee. Hey, do you know anything about what he was just talking about? Have you ever heard that? I'm just curious. About uh, an assassination plot to kill one of the Bush presidents. I, it, it, ra it vaguely rings a bell, but... Uh, I'd have to I'd have to look closer at that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that 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 is a very serious claim, and uh, you know we we do have some other serious claims to make about Mossad that are more proven. Uh, but so let's talk about we got a lot of stuff to talk about. First off, you are in the UK. Uh, uh, I'm in I'm in Ireland uh, at, at the moment, Republic of Ireland. Okay, Just, there we go. Uh, this, oh, this there week. we go. Cool. I I still think that is technically the UK, though. Correct. Uh, not no no no. If I was in the north, it would be, uh, but I am in the in the south. I'm in the the republic. I so see. I'm actually in the Euro European Union. So actually, the you're in the of Ireland. You're in the you're in the uh, disunited K. I guess is what, it's not the United Kingdom. It's yeah. the disunited now. Okay, so maybe that's perfect because you can explain. We were talking to Ian Schilling about this before. Can you explain what the deal is? on how, okay, so let's first off, you just said something that I think people sh should understand too. So you're not in the UK, but you're an island, and I think a lot of people might not understand that. So just give us sort of a 101 on Southern and Northern Ireland and how that affects this uh, Brexit thing. Okay, well, it's uh, Southern Ireland or, or the Republic of Ireland, Ireland proper, it's it's an independent country. Uh, it has been for a very long time, and it uh, was folded into the European Union along with all the other member states. Uh, so in terms of the Brexit argument, uh, it's an issue because Northern Ireland has always been part of the UK. Of course, the UK has been in the European Union. Technically, it still is in the European Union. So the deal with Brexit is uh, people are saying that a hard Brexit or leaving uh, the EU, Britain leaving the EU with no deal, a no-deal Brexit uh, is going to create problems uh, for Northern and Southern Ireland, Northern Ireland being part of the UK, uh, Southern uh, Republic of Ireland being part of the EU, because the border and the customs arrangement between those two countries, uh, then all of a sudden a sort of custom wall appears out of nowhere, a virtual custom wall that wasn't there before because uh, the UK was in the EU, so there was there was open open borders in terms of trade uh, and customs arrangements, immigration, etc., uh, between uh, North and South Ireland. There was there was no difference other than the two independent countries, but they're all in the EU, fall under the same uh, regulatory uh, arrangements and agreements. So now now they're saying, oh, this is a potential deal breaker. This is a potential deal breaker. The uh, the Britain is proposing a, a backstop whereby Northern Ireland uh, becomes a sort of a halfway house between the UK uh, and the EU. So in other words, uh, anything that comes into theoretically uh, into Southern Ireland uh, and goes north and then it would sort of the, the Irish border is the Irish Sea around the whole island. Uh, this is basically what they're proposing. So Nancy Pelosi uh, made a statement recently saying that uh, Congress will not will not vote for a bilateral trade deal between the United States and the UK. So she's sort of holding it hostage on both sides of the Atlantic. She's pretending to anyway, because she's saying that this threatens the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement is the peace treaty between North and South, uh, between the UK and the Republic of Ireland, whereby they promise to have an open and porous border between the North and the South. 
so that uh, there's no division and this uh, you know people can freely move families back and forth etc relations trade etc so how do you separate the uk from the eu but still keep the good friday agreement this is the big question the thing is people are saying that oh a hard brexit or a no deal brexit automatically going to lead to a hard border between the south and the north and that's not necessarily the case i'm in i'm in the south i've been in the north recently and no nobody is going to accept a hard border it's not going to happen they'll find a way around it they'll negotiate some sort of a trans transition uh, midway deal or something maybe it'll be a backstop whereby you know northern ireland will still uh, retain some eu customs uh, regulatory responsibilities in terms of immigration and trade and so forth but the irish are not going to accept it it's there's there there will be no breach of the good friday agreement so nancy pelosi is blowing smoke basically she's virtue signaling to the irish lobby which is like 30% of americans or you know 50% of america if you count everybody that claims irish heritage uh in america that's what pelosi is doing it's not really a deal breaker what it is it's a chance for the eu to to gain some leverage in negotiations but in ireland itself it's not it, there's going to be no hard border between the north and the south it's just i i don't see it happening and neither does anybody i spoke to on both sides of this border well, let me ask you this, Patrick, because when I hear you, you know, saying that Nancy Pelosi said X about this, and this has a significant impact on the Brexit, on, on you know, the whole Brexit um, issue, um, you know, I think back of Barack Obama going on TV, you know, trying to stop the whole, you know, affect the Brexit vote, and, you know, Donald Trump saying things that, you know, for, you know, in, in favor of Brexit, or, you know, people, uh, uh, Pompeo saying things to, you know, uh, uh, about uh, Jeremy Corbyn. How is it viewed over there? How is the U.S., you know, intervention meddling for all the talk of the U.S. that somebody, you know, ran a Facebook ad after the election and that affected everything? How dare they, you know, uh, uh, interfere with our democracy after the election and, and, and et cetera? How is it viewed over there as far as whether it's Pelosi or Trump or Pompeo, all of these Americans basically going over there trying to steer um, you know, interfere with Br Br British elections and steer Brexit in the direction that whichever one of the their groups want. I'm so glad you you mentioned this, Garland, because just last week, uh, John Bolton or Mike Pompeo has made no secret, as you mentioned, about basically opposing the possibility of Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour leader, uh, becoming prime minister or sort of winning in a general election. So John Bolton's the same. Doesn't normally weigh in on trade, but he he has been over the last week or so uh, with the imminent visits to the UK and so forth. But this is a problem because this is U.S. meddling by both Republicans, and you pointed out Obama kind of interfering in the Brexit uh, uh, conversation before. So Democrats and Republicans in America meddling in British uh, politics, meddling in European politics. So, But what difference will it make at the end of the day at the ballot box? It, it could make a little bit of difference depending on, uh, like, for instance, if, if Trump is going over the top to back Boris Johnson, that could mobilize a significant block of the opposition vote for for jeremy corbyn uh, but likewise it could also mobilize a coalition in favor of johnson out of fear that labor is going to get into power and that's more likely what's going to happen however 
Uh, Labor is also mobilizing for a possible coalition as well, so two can play at that game, as the Tories have done in the last two general elections, you know, put together a flimsy coalition to run a minority government with zero mandate, really, in real terms. But that's the, there you have it since 2010. That's what, what we've had. So, But uh, it, it, it's going to get really complicated here in, in the U.K. over this. But what Boris Johnson is pr proposing to do is basically to do some sort of a big bilateral trade deal with the UK, and if you look at who benefits the most out of that, U US has the biggest economy. Uh, clearly, um, the UK is going to benefit um, in a certain way. For, they want jobs, basically, and they'll take US jobs. Ford, GM, opening plants over here, expanding their operations over here. They want a piece of the defense pie for British aerospace to get a little bit of a few US contracts. Maybe Trump can throw their way. But for the US, they want a market to dump their products, ag, ag products. GMO products, junk food, supermarket stuff, privatization. They want deregulation. So Jeremy Corbyn stands in the way of the economic agenda. So in the U.S. wants a stock market that's going up because that's 401ks. That equals votes going into the 2020 election. Boris Johnson needs an economic injection before the coming general election, which look, looks like it's going to be right after the supposed Brexit deadline uh, on October 31st. The general election here with Johnson is going to be probably the beginning of November, maybe by anyone's guess. So he needs a he needs a big announcement to get the markets uh, uh, pumping. Uh, before the general. So he's going to go to the public and say, I've delivered Brexit when Theresa May couldn't. I've done it. And look at the stock market. Everything's going great. Global Britain is on track. And how, the, the big uh, agenda behind all this is an economic one. And so Global Britain is really about reactivating uh, the Commonwealth. So Britain then becomes the, an economic gateway to the Commonwealth, which is still one of the largest uh, you know, supranational uh, organizations globally. And the U.S., by signing a bilateral deal with Britain, Britain can then uh, repeat that deal and use Britain as a gateway to U.S. markets and vice versa. So this will create a short-term bounce in the British economy. But long-term, it looks like the U.S. could come up and buy up everything from the NHS to basically an asset strip what's left of Britain in terms of uh, public ownership and so forth. So that's the big fear uh, that a lot of people have, is that this is what the deregulation, the asset stripping, the privatization is going to put Britain back into the Thatcher era, basically. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is there's a lot to unpack there, Patrick. So let's, uh, a few things. First off, uh, <clears throat> I think that there is a obvious hypocrisy going on, and I, I think you're pointing it out properly about this election meddling. But aside from that, the hypocrisy part, I don't actually care about Obama or anybody talking about other countries' elections. I don't even care that much about Bolton saying something. I think other countries can say stuff about that's not but, – but it needs to be pointed out because it is so hypocritical for what the U.S. has done, which has made election meddling by Russia supposedly, which nobody has argued – seriously and they've never been able to show in court or anything that anything by russia had any real effect on the election but so i don't consider on one hand i don't think i think you'd agree with me right you don't really have a problem with if if they have an election in canada and a u.s president goes you know i think uh, uh, smith is better than jones or whatever i don't care too much about that or i think smith would be better in the country than jones or whatever i don't care about that particularly 
but stop being so hypocritical about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, if they're super PACs, I mean, Steve Bannon was 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 doing the rounds in Europe, as you know, and everybody else uh, read in the papers, you know, put, wanting to open PACs and uh, some sort of think tank uh, franchise in Europe to sort of promote uh, whatever his political agenda is, probably on the right wing of the spectrum. So, you know, that's if that has ties somehow to to the U.S. government or the U.S. establishment, then uh, you, that could be construed as meddling. Um, in terms of what you're talking about, yeah, it, it might not make a big difference at the ballot box. Uh, who knows? But in this poll, the thing is, pol politics is no longer national. Politics is becoming globalized because of the Internet, because of social media. Support waves and consensuses are no longer confined to the local area. They're sort of distorted because everybody's weighing in on uh, Trump and U.S. politics or everyone's weighing in on Brexit, even though they don't you know, live in Britain or even in the EU. Uh, so the, in other words, so it's really important winning that battle of hearts and minds and this perception of consensus in discussions and debates. And that, yes, that could swing uh, a, a close election or a close referendum. Uh, so, I mean, it's, I agree with what you say, Lee, but also we're getting into weird territory now uh, as each year progresses because the political conversation is, is just global now. Uh, so it's very hard to, to measure or contain because it's important to understand what the public mood is or the consensus is in any particular country. But it, it's, it's becoming more distorted. It's, it's, it's harder to tell. Hence, the polls don't necessarily reflect uh, actual results on the ground. We saw, we've seen this time and time again with Brexit, with with Clinton and Trump election. Uh, so I think those problems are just going to continue. And so, what's the re remedy for that? The remedy is is uh, walling off social media. It's uh, trying to control the conversations online. It's blaming Russia for anything that doesn't go the establishment's way. Uh, or you know, the U.S. will blame Russia if Corbyn wins. Uh, the election, so will the Tories, so will Rupert Murdoch. Everybody will blame Russia if Labour wins. Uh, that That's a certainty. Well, so now, okay. uh, everyone will, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, by the way, we're joined by Patrick Henningsen, 21stCenturyWire.com, 21Wire on Twitter. And you can join the uh, show, 202-521-1320. Patrick will be on to the end of the uh, hour. Next segment, we'll be talking about Syria and also this Proud Boys versus Antifa things some stories you can find up over at 21st Century Wire. Let me tell you this about Bannon. Here's my take on Bannon at this point, Patrick. And this is, uh, this is my, my, my take has changed uh, based on things I know now that I did not know even a month ago. I had been souring on Bannon. Now I am very sour on Bannon. I think Bannon's role out there is he talked, he realizes, and I don't even know who he works for. I, I'm not saying he, I'm, to some extent, he's an independent-ish operator, but he's clearly got a different agenda. He's a guy who talks a good game on populism. Like, Garland, have, have you seen snippets of Steve Bannon's speeches where you go, that sounds good? Right, yeah, yep. Right? He knows what to say. He knows what to say. But behind the scenes, and he is also cognizant of the fact that there is this populist and let me define that, an anti-elitist wave where people are aware, for instance, of people like George Soros, for instance, Garland, on, and how they've affected the political process globally. Now, as opposed to Andrew Breitbart, who ran Breitbart when it was Breitbart, before the Bannon took over the night Andrew died, I saw it happen in real time. 
Bannon immediately took over. And what happened was Breitbart went from a place where getting the story right, as much criticism as Andrew Breitbart take, let's say in the Anthony Weiner story, right? He was right on the Pigford story that I worked on him with. He was right about that. We were factually right. And that's what he was interested in. Bannon is an operator. He is a propagandist, pure and simple. He's a propagandist. He brought people, and I wasn't one of them. And I think he knew that about me, which is why I had to quit Breitbart three separate times uh, in the Bannon regime. Was, uh, and, I, and I will include when he was in the White House as part of being part of the Bannon regime, because Bannon was working directly with the uh, Washington editor. Matt Boyle was talking to him on an ongoing basis. Now, Bannon is a propagandist, and, and it is very disturbing to me that Andrew Breitbart's legacy is being besmirched by this guy. You want to talk about election interference? I think Brexit was a very close vote. I think Breitbart London, which Bannon started, was a big factor in that. Patrick, do you have a take on that? Because Breitbart London was, was yeah, we've only got, we only got 30 seconds left. Uh, let's get a real quick take on that and we'll come back, Patrick. Yeah, but I, I, don't, I don't know how big of a factor uh, Breitbart London was in, in the in the re referendum result in the uh, summer of 2016. But, you know, they did arrive on the scene, uh, but they also arrived on the scene as, uh, at the same time as BuzzFeed London and all these sort of American uh, imports started coming in and sort of take, staking a position on the right, on the left, on the center, and all these sort of ver new, new media outlets sort of appearing. Uh, and I think it added... Um, a little bit of it, it really just polarized I think what was already there I think we had this this conversation before and this is like this is one of the effects of uh, this this kind of partisan media revolution is that it just hardens people's positions that sort of already exist but in terms of winning the center the swing vote I'm not sure uh, either way uh, Pat, it was a very close we, vote I mean it's one 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 percent that's uh, right we have Patrick Kenzie 21st Century Wire we will be joined by Patrick next segment fault lines and Nixon and Stranahan fault lines we are above all the latest developments and we don't take any sides radio Sputnik telling the untold important hour of the day it's the critical hour with dr wilmer leon on this show we don't just deliver the latest headlines we divide the real from the fake tune in to hear from some of the most brilliant political minds of today get in-depth news and analysis that goes beyond the surface and dig straight into the details set your clock to the critical hour for a news perspective unlike any of those other guys Tune in to The Critical Hour with Dr. Wilmer Leon, weekdays, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern, and catch us on Facebook Live. You're listening to Radio Sputnik. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines with Nixon and Stranahan on 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in Washington, D.C. We are talking with Patrick Henningsen. He's a journalist, and he's the founder of a great website. If you want news, great independent news, it's 21st Century, and that's the 2-1, 21stCenturyWire.com. Real, real quickly, Patrick, just to follow up what we were talking about before the break, here, here's my argument. Breitbart was part of that new media's uh, coming into the U.K., but they were the only 
100% pro-Brexit. I mean, they were, they were as pro-Brexit as you can be. The editor of Breitbart London, Raheem Kassam, was Nigel Farage's, one of his, part of his entourage, a major part of it. And that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying in a less than 1% election, I think that Breitbart actually was, because there was nobody else that I can think of in the new media who was, like, without that Breitbart voice in there, who would have been as pro-Brexit? They weren't even trying to be. That bringing in Raheem was on purpose. Yeah, yeah, no, they amplified, uh, and Farage, you kept Nigel Farage at the height, at the at literally the apex of their um, popularity there, and, you know, the, right, right at the time when, when they needed to be. So, yeah, the Breitbart did probably give them a, a little bit of an extra push. It was like a, a, a platform, a go-to platform. Uh, but again, it's it was a go-to platform, I think, for people who are already that way inclined. I think the thing that surprises Americans and the thing that even some Europeans don't understand is that Euroscepticism in Britain goes, it, it, it's that's a vein that runs very deep. It goes all the way back to the 1970s on both the right and the left. Tony Benn was an ardent uh, socialist, uh, the, the grand, you know, the, the godfather of uh, the modern Labour Party. Uh, he himself was a huge Eurosceptic. He would have been right up there with Farage on the front lines, uh, calling for Brexit. So there, that that still existed. And I think I think it was those left skeptics that 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 would to me would have they're up for grabs really to swing the vote more say than the people who are already in the UKIP camp. But it did give UKIP, Breitbart did give UKIP a kind of warm, fuzzy place to hang out. You know, it gave the Farage support supporters and the hard Brexiteers a comfortable place which to wage battle. And it's important to have those platforms, uh, you know, from which to wage battle. And, and Breitbart UK was definitely one of those. Well, no, and, and we're, we're seeing that play out right now in Italy, where the prime minister has resigned. And this is a would you you'd agree right? This is a power play by Salvini, who's the with the league, the I, I, part of that populist wave we've right. been talking about. The, uh, the kind of a new politics kind of thing going on. New politics yeah. has to do. We we're talking. We defined MAGA in the last segment. I said a lot of it has to do with migration. A lot of the populist wave has to do with migration. Uh, what's your take on that, Patrick? The, the Italy situation is really interesting because that's that's a that wasn't a natural sort of uh, alliance or coalition. The Five Star Movement. This was founded by a comedian uh, Beppe Grillo. So it would be sort of Trump light, if you will. Well, he's been having a crack at that really for let's say the last ten years, and they finally reached a point uh, where they managed to gain enough seats uh, in the legislature, and then the Northern League, which rebranded itself to the League. Uh, and that's who Salvini's representing. So, the, it, but it wasn't a nat because the five star. There were a lot of lefties. In the, it's very much left wing center uh, majority. I think the people identified with five star league is absolutely right wing. All of the things that you just mentioned with regards to immigration. So it was a natural coalition, but it was kind of a marriage of convenience. And uh, but I think it did. Uh, I don't know. It created a little bit of. Um, a little, a little bit of a fracture, maybe in the sort of the ideological uh, grassroots left. Some of the people that were sympathetic towards Five Star, hence uh, the, the the support. The the honeymoon's over, basically, in Italy, and the the grassroots support is now sort of going back to its normal place in Italian politics, which is massive division, multiple factions, 
massive uh, uh, little side wing parties popping up and very difficult to get a consensus on anything. But I think I think there's uh, there's a chance in Italy. There's a chance that uh, if Italy finds its backbone, it really should be leading the Eurosceptic conversation. Italy is still a huge economy, still hugely influential. It's a major NATO member. Uh, so, they, I mean, they have a big role to play in terms of opposing Brussels and some of the economic policies in Brussels that, quite frankly, are weighed against the southern European countries, or as they uh, so rudely referred to them years ago as the pigs countries, Portugal, Italy, uh, Greece, and Spain. So uh, I, I do think there is a split in Europe, uh, it's, but it's an economic split, and that economic split has, is leading to an ideological split. So Italy is at the they're the vanguard of that right now more than any other uh, southern european country. Well something you guys I'd like to pivot a bit something you guys and and this is a you know there there's big time activity going on um over in Syria we've got the russian air force is starting to bomb some isis positions again and then there's some interesting things going on with turkey and the us turkey feeling they've been attacked by either the russians or the syrian you know, the, the the syrian military so what are your thoughts on what's happening right now in Syria and, and, and how you think, you know, what, what, what's behind that? It, it, it's interesting uh, what's happening in Syria right now uh, as because the, the uh, Idlib, the northern province of Idlib, this has been the sort of terrorist, last remaining really bona fide terrorist stronghold. Or if you're talking from one side of the uh, a geopolitical conversation, you'd call, the, they'd call them the rebels the freedom-fighting rebels, if you're talking from a Washington perspective or London or Paris perspective. These are, it's a rebel stronghold. But in real terms, it's a terrorist stronghold. This is even admitted by high-level U.S. officials. Even Brett McGurk admitted that this was an al-Qaeda stronghold. So this is falling now in a key stronghold of Khan Shahun. This was the site of the alleged chemical weapons supposed sarin attack in April of 2017. Uh, so Khan Shahun has fallen to the Syrian army. That's huge. That's huge for a lot of different reasons. But Idlib itself will eventually fall. Turkey has positioned itself to delay that falling and is still supporting some of what it calls rebel groups, which are remnants of the Free Syrian Army that it's been supporting. But the United States has been supporting that too. So Turkey is playing a double game, uh, or triple game, really, for the last eight years. And so right now, it's, it's going to become very difficult for Turkey to maintain uh, the facade. They have uh, managed to uh, enjoy uh, a little bit of uh, cover, if you will, from the confusion and the smoke uh, that, that these sort of occupied areas have allowed, both in Idlib, but also in the ambiguity from the confusion in northeastern Syria. Okay, I think Turkey, and now Russia is hitting ISIS targets in the east. Uh, pretty hard. At the same time, Syria is going for uh, Idlib right now and making huge uh, gains. So Turkey has been able to double date Moscow uh, and, and Washington to some degree, although it's drifted a little bit away from Washington after the uh, supposed coup that wasn't a coup uh, uh, a few years ago that almost ousted er Erdogan, so to speak. But, you know, was it really a coup? That's another conversation. But now Turkey can't play this game much longer uh, because because the fact of the matter is on the ground Syria is advancing and it is its territory it has a, a right to reclaim every inch of its territory as it said it's going to do for a very long time and so that that's Syrian territory it's not Turkish territory it's not rebel territory it belongs 
to the sovereign nation of Syria uh, and represented in the United Nations as such. Those borders are internationally recognized. So the, Turkey will have a much harder time dealing with that. Now Turkey's sending the Syrian immigrants back home. In some cases in Istanbul, Syrian shopkeepers, different people, give, giving them a week to go home. Basically, pack up your stuff after seven, eight years and go. Basically, they, they so they're pulling the rug out from under the Syrians who they've used uh, in order to help provide some uh, support for Turkey's geopolitical ambitions uh, versus its neighbor uh, in supporting this uprising or these rebels. And now Turkey's basically pulling the rug out from under the refugee uh, issue in, in, in Turkey right now. And over in the northeast of Syria, the U.S. is still jointly occupying a uh, large section of the country, 30% of the country's landmass, along with the Kurdish SDF, its proxy force that it's trained and armed. Uh, so if Idlib becomes resolved and falls back into Syrian hands, it's only a matter of time before the penny drops for the United States and the Kurds uh, in northeastern Syria. But then Turkey also is trying to negotiate something. And I think Turkey has, at the end of the day, has territorial and energy extraction ambitions. But, uh, I don't know how it's, it's it's proposing to do that, but I think it is. Uh, uh, the, the thing I want to ask you about is, uh, uh, real quick, and that is um, sanctions. The other part is, and, and a lot of people don't even realize this, I think, but uh, that's why I wanted to bring it up with you and get your thought, and that is, okay, basically, for the most part, Syria has won the war. It's their country, and the U.S. and, and the European Union have these sanctions against the Syrians. Now, how can the Syrians return when we've got these I would call them childish, childish kind of punishment sanctions that says we'll sanction anybody that tries to help Syria rebuild their 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 sovereign nation. Well, I'll point out that that ship that was a that Iranian ship that was grabbed off Gibraltar. The reason they were grabbed is because they were bringing oil to Syria. In other words, this is a direct relation to our Syrian policy. Grabbing that ship, uh, uh, Pat, Patrick. I want to talk about other stuff too, but just a minute or so. What's your take on that? Well, um, the fir first thing on the refugee issue uh, that Garland mentioned, uh, so now refugees in, in Turkey have two choices. They either go to Europe and say that they are being, you know, chased out of Syria by the evil Bashar al-Assad, given automatic asylum status at that point, or they turn around and then go home to Syria and saying, we love you, Bashar. We love you, Bashar. Uh, for please forgive us uh, for, you know, fleeing to Turkey. We're fleeing the terrorists, not you and then get back into Syria. But in terms of uh, economic opportunities, very little in Syria because of what you just pointed out, Lee, and that's because of the economic embargo stroke sanctions that's been going on since 2012. And so Syria would normally have oil for itself. In other words, they wouldn't need to import uh, oil because right now their oil fields are being occupied largely uh, by Kurdish forces backed by the United States who basically uh, had them handed to them by the previous occupant, which was ISIS. So all of this time, uh, Syria not being able to get its own fuel supply in its own territory, that would be like if ISIS went and occupied a large portion of Texas and basically sold uh, part of the oil back to the U.S. on the black market and exported the rest via Mexico. And you know what would that do? The United States would then have to import oil. They would no longer be energy independent, as Syria was. So before the EU, the joint EU-US sanctions. And so those bilateral sanctions have uh, cut off Syria uh, from being able to do business on all fronts 
with the outside world, but also they have the double whammy of having their oil and gas fields, the most productive areas, occupied by a foreign power for the last seven to eight years. So that's a recipe for complete economic disaster. And the main reason is, and for unrest, because Syria paid for its education, its, its medical, uh, all of the public services. Most of that money came that pays for that budget for, for inside the country came from the sale of oil to the European Union, one of the biggest purchasers being Germany uh, and Italy. So when that was cut off and that was over, uh, then all of a sudden, where's the money going to come from to, to make your balance of payments domestically? And so all sorts of problems snowballed uh, from that situation. And that gives you what you have now, which is a, a failed economy uh, in Syria that's just literally holding on for dear life. Now, I got to say, Patrick, too, I noticed over 21st Century Wire, again, we're talking to Patrick Henningsen. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of 21st Century Wire. You can follow them at 21stCenturyWire.com, 21Wire on Twitter. I noticed you have a story up there about Antifa and the Proud Boys who had this big uh, protest, counter-protest, march, counter-march. So uh, here's my concern about this whole thing, and I think this is a big deal. I think this is part of a – and it can't get – first off, I think that Antifa and the Proud Boys don't actually have a huge constituency that knows or agrees with them on either side. I don't think Garland's an Antifa guy, and I don't think I'm a Proud Boys guy, right? But by making them the representatives, and when I say cartoonish representatives, I mean literally they were wearing banana costumes and other stuff, which, okay, or wearing American flag bandanas and camo and blah, blah, blah. What they, I think what they're doing is they're, they're becoming icons, and they're trying to make people like Garland and I who are on the left or right take a rooting interest in these bozos, and I'm just going to say that across the board, that they don't have a big constituency. But by making people on the left and right take a rooting interest, well, I'm against fascism. You know what? Me too. I am too. And that's why I've been reporting on these the actual Nazis that were being supported by some of these people. But I also don't think that, that Garland is Antifa. Are you an anarchist in a banana costume? No. Okay, there we go. Patrick, what's your take on the whole uh, battleground that I see? I see it as a propaganda. I really do. I agree. I see it as a propaganda technique, and these people are being used, and that's why sites like Breitbart, shame on them, shame on them for what they're doing. They're making the country worse, and shame on the people on the left pushing it as well. Patrick, what's been your, been your coverage? Yeah, I, I, I posted a commentary by by someone who I absolutely agree with on this, which is the writer and uh, political commentator Michael Tracy. And basically he's saying yes. that this is a pantomime street theater. And, you know, it granted the, the, the left uh, side of the spectrum, they are sort of they have a predilection towards street theater. They like getting out and doing, you know, performances and, and, and activism now and dressing up and putting on the makeup, and that's really what you have with Antifa. It's become a, a theatrical thing. And then the Proud Boys or the alt-right or whatever is meant to oppose that uh, is equally uh, turning into this kind of uh, pantomime, if you will, of uh, the patriot movement or something like this. So you have the so supposed fascists and the supposed anti-fascist, and both of them are highly inauthentic. They represent, they don't have, uh, they don't represent a majority of anything uh in the country it's more for it's more entertainment but while it happens both sides are vying for attention on social media 
they're 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 fundraising. Uh, they're also marketing fashion at the end of the day. All of that garb, uh, you know, the T-shirts, the, the, you know, we've gone from the Che Guevara T-shirt now to the black block look, basically, with the German World War II, World War One German helmets and sort of a, a poor Harley uh, Davison sort of look. And on the right, you have all this expensive gear, the quasi-military look that you have and all the tattoos. Tattoos cost money, by the way. They're not free. But, you know, and the, the military, the paramilitary look, the, the, the patriot uh, militia look. So now you have the experience. You get the far left Antifa experience. But this doesn't really exist in real terms in, in the, overall in America. Then you have the, the patriot experience. But the, the Proud Boy uh, movement isn't really a movement. It's a virtual movement. Uh, they'll both declare virtual victory somehow by by who who got the biggest amount of retweets or likes on social media or which YouTube video got the most amount of views and that somehow translates into a win. This is this is activism in America in in 2019. It's complete pantomime. It's total simulacra. It's it's street theater. Uh, and it, but it's fashion. It's a business as well. well let me you can buy that. all that gear online. Let me let me add this. Um, you know, if you've re ever read, I don't know if you're familiar with Roland Barthes, uh, uh, the French philosopher, wrote a book called Mythologies. And in it, he talks about politics from the perspective of championship wrestling. This is it. That's championship wrestling. You know what I mean? He talks about how, you know, totally. a, a politician who, you know, the difference between that and boxing where they really hit each other. It's real. Somebody loses. What, what have you. Yeah, they've been fixed or whatever. But in, in wrestling, people want some, something that appears to be real, that, you know, they get a good guy and a bad guy, somebody they can cheer for, and you know who's the good guy and all that. And it really reminds me, looking at this, of exactly what he's talking about, where it's championship wrestling, where people want something that gives them the look of a reality battle between good and evil or whatever. And in reality, it's what you said. People are starting to come to the reality that it's a straight street, street theater. It's championship wrestling. Well, not and we're to, being ahead. Not to oh. adapt that metaphor, but I will say this, Patrick. We are the good guys. And they are the bad guys. <laughs> By they, I mean everybody pushing that stupid wrestling narrative, trying to make people stupider and angrier. We don't do that. Patrick Henningsen, you don't do that. Over at 21st Century Wire. By the way, Michael Tracy, a great a great writer who I've, I've interviewed. I'd love to get Michael on the show. Come on the show, Michael. Patrick will tell you we're nice. We don't bite. Unless we're in our costumes, and we might. Okay, we got more coming up. Thanks, Patrick Henningsen. Bill Giraldi joining us next as we go to the top of the hour news, too. And we'll hear about Shane's kayaking story, Garland. Listen to Fault Lines and Nixon. Stranahan.